Everything classic. From the heart of Tennessee, Mule Town Radio. 103.7 FM and 1340 AM. Sometimes we need a little extra help. Whether you're recovering from an illness or surgery, Murray Regional Home Services offers care ranging from nursing services to physical therapy in the comfort of your home. Our highly qualified and caring staff provides individualized care for patients in an eight-county region. To learn more about Murray Regional Home Services, visit murrayregional.com or call 931-490-4600. That's 490-4600. Hello, I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. You may have heard our previous commercials about compression hosiery that we carry at Holland's Pharmacy. Well, we've recently expanded into a full line of knee braces, back, wrist, ankle, and other support wear. We will gladly help you get just the right fit for these items and, of course, special order items to ensure the proper fit. Come see us at Holland's Pharmacy, 1608 Hatcher Lane, or call us at 931-388-4233. 388-4233. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter. Like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Hi, I'm Steve, the garbage man. By now you all know about Don, our service truck guy. Well, let me tell you about another member of our service team, and that's Mike Ashley. He's the guy you'll talk to when you call the office. Just call and talk to Mike one time at 931-540-0919, and you'll see why we're lucky to have him here at the Garbage Man. Thanks, Mike, for all you do to keep the Garbage Man first in service. That's 931-540-0919. For 60 years, people all over Middle Tennessee have returned to Parks Motor Sales again and again because they get the best vehicles and best service possible. Go to ParksMotorSales.com for options. New Buicks, pre-owned cars, trucks, and SUVs, financing, certified technicians, parts, tires, and more. Then stop by 919 Nashville Highway, test drive a Buick, and see why the Buick Encore and Buick Enclave are among America's most reliable vehicles. Experience the new Buick at Parks Motor Sales. Good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today's topic, the Cold War. With the end of World War II and the defeat of fascism, a new world order was established. The Americans and their European democratic capitalist allies controlled Western Europe, while the Soviet Union and its communist allies held the East. As communism spread deeper into Asia, Korea became a flashpoint battleground in the 1950s. Although the fighting happened between North and South Korea, the two superpowers providing men and material, 
The conflict, however, was the openly violent smaller segment of a much larger Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Both countries used the world as a chessboard of espionage and subversion, each country attempting to gain the upper hand in a race for global dominance. That international story was the stage upon which our guest today was an important player. In 1954, Mr. Robert Jones was just 21 years old, but already an experienced spy for the American National Security Agency. His missions frequently brought him to Europe, where he was tasked with gathering information about America's allies as well as its enemies. Mr. Jones has recorded his incredible story in a short book titled Room 204, Story of a Cold War Spy. Mr. Jones, good morning. Good morning, Tom. Glad to be here. My co-host today is Dr. Barry Gidcombe, who also joins us in the studio. Good morning, Dr. Gidcombe. Good morning, Tom. Mr. Jones, you were born in Davidson County, and we're going to get to the spy stuff because that's what everybody wants to hear. But I, I want to get a little bit of your background, if I might. So you were born in Davidson County, Tennessee, in 1933, in the midst of the Great Depression. You came from modest beginnings? Yes, certainly did, Tom. Uh, I, most of the stories that I remember came from my siblings, my older sibling. I was a baby of eight growing up right in the middle of the depression what did your father and do for a living he was a blacksmith uh worked for the nc and st l railroad uh, uh off and on during the depression between layoffs and so forth so he, time's tough uh, eight eight children eight mouths to feed uh and he he's working as a blacksmith as he can he, he yeah. was also a product if i remember from your book of some of the new deal uh, programs, the uh, Works Progress Administration, for instance. Yes, uh, WPA, uh, he, uh, from Dr. President Roosevelt, he got uh, hired there, I believe, making like 30, 35 cents an hour, and he helped lay a lot of the rock in, the, in, in what is now known as Percy Warner Park, I believe, throughout Nashville, where the uh, horse equal races and all the health. Right, right. Uh, your family moved to Murray County when you were about seven years old. I was in the second grade. That's correct. What what brought your family here? Uh, a job that my father had at Victor at the old Victor Chemical Company, a phosphate company, that he had worked there about two years before moving our family to to Mount Pleasant. And your father wasn't the only one working. You you mentioned in your book that you had an awful lot of jobs as a kid growing up. How old oh. when you? were you when you got started working and and what were some of the jobs well a lot had? of a lot of a lot of my jobs were, were right at the house uh as a younger child in the age nine ten years old we uh we had no electricity no running water and it was my my mother i remember always washing uh the clothes every monday morning it was my job to uh to cut firewood build a fire under the pots and carry water from the from the well to the pots and before school hours, before walking two and a half miles to school. And you were in Mount Pleasant going to school there? Yes, right? living, living on Canaan Road in Mount Pleasant. Uh, you uh, delivered newspapers? Uh, After we moved to town, I did. Uh, I carried a lot of newspapers, um, the Morning Tennessean and the, and the Banner in total. Then on Sunday morning, uh, not being a banner on Sunday, of course, I had about a Oh, 120, 25 papers to deliver on Sunday morning. Saturday morning was a big day when you carried your papers to Tennessee and then had to uh, go back and collect from all the customers. And uh, I, I collected, I believe it was like 25 cents a, a week for the, for, the, for the paper, Tennessee, and seven papers a week. What, what could you get for 25 cents? 
in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee. <laughs> uh, uh, after I collected on Saturday, I always went by a little, a little. I, I, my dad called it a beer joint. It really wasn't in my estimation, but uh, I always went in, and there was two or three pinball machines in there, and I always had to get me a Coke and a candy bar, uh, a nickel apiece. And uh, before walking back on across town, carrying my collection money back to Mr. Bob Hollins, who was manager of the, of the 10 CN and the Banner in the Mount Pleasant area. Um, most of the phosphate operations are gone now from Mount Pleasant. Can you describe what Mount Pleasant was like in the 1940s when, when so much of that was still going on? Was it a bustling town? How does it differ it, from today? It was a bustling town, and I remember well. Uh, on, on Sunday mornings particularly, uh, I had a second job. Um, uh, after carrying papers uh, throughout the week and on Sunday morning, I worked at a black uh, barbershop in Mount Pleasant, Shining Shoes. And I could make more money shining shoes in Mount Pleasant than I could carrying papers all week long. So, But uh, regardless, whatever happened, I had to be out of that barbershop and in Sunday school at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. Did you get to keep <laughs> the money that you made, or were you helping out the family as much I as you could? I helped out the family. We were still struggling, trying to recover from debt and all from the Depression. So, yes, I, I, I helped the family. It's an amazing and, and different time. Um, so that brings us up to about 1940, 1941. In your book, you mentioned that your father and your family would sort of gather around, and your father would listen to a little crystal radio with headphones. It didn't have any speakers. And he would relay to your family what was being said. You remember Pearl Harbor? Yes, absolutely. We was it, we was in a, a three full room house, including an upstairs room, uh, the family room where my mother and dad's bedroom was. That's where we all sat. That's where we had the one little fireplace to try to keep warm by. But I remember well, Dad sitting over in the corner listening to the crystal radio with with headsets on, and uh, relaying to the family what was what had had taken place at that time, in uh, on December seventh, nineteen forty one. And my parents being so upset, they knowing then that uh, what was forthcoming to our family and not just our family but to our nation uh, at the very beginning of World War II. And, and as they suspected, I, we wound up with, with all my brothers and brother-in-law and uh, brother-in-laws uh, serving in service. How, how many of your brothers went? Uh, I had three brothers in service. Uh, one of them, because of physical problems, uh, was discharged early on, but the other two went on and, and, and took a large large part in the Second World War. One of them uh, uh, served in the Navy on the aircraft carrier Franklin and on the heavy cruiser Pittsburgh. Uh, the Franklin was the most damaged uh, ship in the Second World War that stayed afloat. Big Ben. Uh, Big Ben, it sure was. Uh, one of my other brothers was a belly gunner on a B-17, and on their last flight before leaving the States, uh, going to England to be deployed into the war, he uh, had a busted eardrum and wasn't able to travel, go with his crew. And as it happened, uh, the, the flew crew that he served on, the first flight over Germany, that whole crew was shot down and lost. So I guess that's a... That was a God thing that uh, he was pulled from the flight, but right. and he just lived up to about two years ago. Wow. Died at the age 94. 
Wow, incredible. You, you graduated from Haylong High School, I sure assume? Did. Yeah, sure did, in 1951. <laughs> with aspirations to be a mechanical engineer. Yes. What, yes. what got you interested I, in that? Uh, I guess following maybe somewhat of what my, my dad did, and he, he was a blacksmith and uh, could make anything out of steel and iron and, and all, and I guess it was just from him that I wanted to be a, a mechanical engineer. You were accepted and briefly attended Tennessee Polytechnic Institute, which today is known as Tennessee I Tech. I, I had worked uh, in the summers and all leading up to it, saved a little bit of money, and uh, uh, not knowing the cost of college, uh, yeah, I was in a big way to go off to Tennessee Tech and, and start classes. But soon after my first quarter at uh, Christmas break, I was out of money and, and uh, didn't know what was going to happen, that I had no money to come back to school on, so... Uh, I joined the military at that time. And, th and that's where this I all... I thought I was needed better right then. Right. And, and that's where this all begins. Um, where was basic training for you? Fort Knox, Kentucky. And it began like any other enlisted man's military career, I suppose, right. at that point? I, I went into a infantry basic training, a 16-week course that was really, really tough. Uh, but I endured it. Uh, if it was not been for a black sergeant that uh, that that cautioned us through and took care of all us boys, I tell you, uh, he made men out of us in a hurry. An interesting turn of events, however, you're still in basic training, and your father gets a visit from an FBI agent. What what was what did uh, he want, and uh, how did your father react to that? My uh, uh, the mail that I received was always from my mother. She always wrote the letters. But in this particular case, I had a letter from my dad. I thought, well, I opened it up. Something must be going on. Uh, he simply told me that there had been an FBI agent in, in the Mount Pleasant area asking a lot of questions about me that he understood from his friends and other people told him that they had been questioned. And uh, he just said, Bob, is there something wrong in your life? Is there something going on that I need to know about? And I said, no, no. I wrote back and I said, no, Dad. Uh, it, I, I have no cause. I have no reason to know that anything is happening. And uh, as it turned out a little bit later, it was I was being investigated and getting security clearances and so forth uh, to follow up on what I eventually went into was a national security agency serving as a spy. But a lot of training preceding that. Right. So did you have any idea at that point in time that, the, that you were being sort of looked at as a potential no no i did not uh uh the only thing i might could relate to tom would be that uh during my younger years i was in the boy scout troop in mount pleasant and my scout leader mr doug spurlock uh was teaching us boys for a merit badge morse code and uh and i was kind of fascinated just with the dots and the dashes and 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 trying to put together a few little codes so possibly that that contributed to my uh, in my testing and all that I went through it uh, when I first went into service that led to this. Right. Well, I hate to do it, but we're going to have to take a break. We'll be back in 3 minutes and 30 seconds on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break.
At Stat Wellness Primary Healthcare, we know in today's busy world, people expect quality products and services, plus convenience, even when it comes to healthcare. Don't wait to see your provider, wait somewhere else for lab work, and then wait somewhere else again for prescriptions. We can take care of it all in one stop. Come to Stat Wellness in Columbia, 1225 Hampshire Pike, and my team and I will take good care of you. Get on the road to wellness, Stat. Call now, 931-982-6333, 982-6333. Not everyone that goes to jail deserves to be there, but they all want out. If you or a loved one ends up in jail, call Billy Hood at ABC Bonding to get out as fast as possible. ABC Bonding knows how the system works, and they know their customers are in dire need of help. That's why they're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week to get you out. ABC Bonding in Columbia can be reached at 490-9799. That's 490-9799. Jones and Lang Sporting Goods is a full-service sporting goods store that supplies everything you, team or your entire league need for sports call 388-8060 or go to jonesandlang.com apparel equipment fan gear from postseason prep to customized trophies at season's end they've been in business more than 50 years because they give you the best products the best service and the best prices possible jones and lang sporting goods located in neely's mill right here in columbus call 388-8060 or go to jonesandlang.com if you're looking for quality, affordable jewelry, you must visit Tillis Jewelry. 30 years designing custom jewelry, restoring vintage jewelry, repairing jewelry and watches, and they're the perfect place for bridal pieces and engagement rings. They can help you find exactly what you're looking for or help you design the jewelry of your dreams. Just a short drive to Lewisburg on the square to visit Tillis Jewelry or browse Tillis Jewelry's collections on Facebook or Instagram. Property care doesn't have to be back-breaking and time-consuming work for you. Let the specialists at Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping take care of it. You just enjoy. New or existing homes and businesses, basic lawn maintenance, complete property makeovers, new landscaping installs, and anything in between. Grading, gravel driveways, culverts, sod, drainage, beds, whatever you need. Find Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping on Facebook, then give them a call. Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Mr. Bob Jones, who is a spy for the National Security Agency during the Cold War. Uh, um, Mr. Jones, so you got through basic training, uh, sort of behind your back, the FBI is sort of uh, looking at test scores and and looking at you for the possibility of, of joining a new agency, which we'll, we'll talk about in just a, a second. But upon graduating from basic training, you and you alone out of your class were escorted to Langley, Virginia by a United States Marshal. Why were you picked? And what, if anything, did he tell you about what your next posting was going to be? Well, Tom, I don't really know why I was picked, but uh, yes, I was the only one singled out out of my company of about 240 men that was going through basic. And uh, I was told to uh, report to the orderly room, which was a company office. And there I met uh, a United States Marshal who had orders to carry me, uh, transport me to uh, Langley, Virginia. 
So uh, we drove into Knox, into Louisville, Kentucky, and turned in his rented car and flew over to Washington and drove out that night, this being on a Saturday, to uh, Langley, Virginia, and went into what was then becoming the CIA headquarters. They was in the middle at that time, moving from downtown Washington, D.C., out to Langley, and, uh, and they was in the process of building their new CIA headquarters where it is today. So, so did he tell you where you were going? He told me that we was at the CIA headquarters, and after meeting a, 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 a gentleman behind the desk that night at the, in the administration building, he told me that we were at the CIA headquarters, but uh, I was not a CIA agent by any means, and it, uh, I probably never would be, but uh, they was there to give me some training and, uh, and to proceed with uh, what was going on. And that was the very beginning of the, the, the number of my book, 204. Uh, I was assigned a bedroom that night, a uh, private bedroom in, in the facility, and it was room number 204. Told me that uh, uh, to make myself at home, told me where the cafeteria was, open 24-7, and uh, uh, but just to not to be asking any questions or in being inquisitive to people that people really didn't care about me or who I was or where I came from, and uh, just kind of behave myself and to be ready to start uh, some proceedings on Monday morning. What kind of training did they put you through? We went through, Tom, a lot of just 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 recognition of knowing what you see and when you when you see it to remember it and recognize any changes that takes place uh, from one day to the next, from one hour to the next. Uh, we had a lot of one-on-one training where they carried us out into the different communities in and around Langley, and uh, and we would notice in what was taking place around certain buildings or courthouses or of churches or anything and we'd stand and observe and watch and then we'd go back in a few hours to see if we could recognize as an individual any changes that was made uh, we went from uh <coughs> from day to day we trained there about four weeks uh, doing the same thing day in and day out it was a group of seven of us that was uh started that training i don't know why it was seven uh nothing significant to me uh but anyway it was always in my classes i went through it was always seven in the training we stayed there four weeks and and it went through a very intensive recognition and remembering what you see and 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 relate that to anything whether it be words or scenes or colors or whatever it might be Uh, and that proved to help me an awful lot further into my training and my duties it was around that time that you learned that you were going to be part of a brand new agency begun by President Truman called the National Security Agency, which is obviously still in existence today. What was the purpose of that agency? How did it differ from, say, the FBI or the CIA? We were uh, went into different trainings. We was moved from Langley, Virginia, CIA headquarters, to uh, Ben Hill, Ben Hill Farms, Virginia, just a short uh, distance away, and we went through a another eight weeks of training there uh very intense training on <coughs> uh, excuse me very intense training on everything that 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 took place it was the most mental harrowing thing i think anybody could endure uh, from hypnotism to 
everything else that it, we were just stressed to a point from one hour to the next. It went on for eight weeks, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, not a break. Uh, sometimes we would be released. And by the way, uh, when we I reported to Ben Hill Farms, my, uh, my room there, my bedroom, was room number 204 again. So here begins my story a little bit with the reason I named the book 204. Right. Uh, we would go back to our room and, and stay maybe 15 minutes, not knowing how long it might be, 20 minutes, an hour, and would be called right back out to classes and more stressful mental mental training. And uh, it sometimes three hours, I think, was the most that I ever uh, was released to go back to a bedroom to get some sleep during that eight-week period of time. Uh, so they're trying to test you. Absolutely. See what your limits are. Yeah, I think to just even see if you broke, you right. know, if you would just break a, a, mentally under the stress of the training. Out of the seven people in your class, do you have any idea how many people got through it or how many people didn't get through it? Well, uh, after we completed our, our training there at Ben Hill Farms, we were uh, broken up in, into, into different training sessions. Uh, two of the young men went to Fort Devens, Massachusetts, to radio school. Uh, two of them was going to stay right there at Ben Hill Farms for a cryptographic school. That's a, a thing of coding and decoding messages uh, that I really loved, and I got into that a little bit later. Uh, two of them went to Monterey, California, to language school. And those two people, Tom, I, I'd never heard of after we broke up and went there. Uh, I know they probably got into uh, interpretations and languages and all that that uh, that I encountered some other people with. So, uh, and then I myself, uh, by myself, went to uh, <coughs> Fort Gordon, Georgia, which is Camp Gordon, Georgia, which is now Fort Gordon, Georgia, and I went to radio school. Uh, I was told when I went down there to again uh, to not to be inquisitive about me or not to get too private with anybody, uh, strictly to go through school, and and, uh, and I would be brought back to Ben Hill Farms. After an eventful trip to the NSA headquarters in Frankfurt, Germany, you were given money and told to go shopping and buy civilian clothes, and within a few days you were sent to SHAPE headquarters in Paris. What was SHAPE, and what was your role to be there? SHAPE was, uh, was just a, a name for the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe. And that was the, the headquarters of, of all the NATO nations that was taking place during this period of time in the Cold War. And uh, it was a, a big complex. I, I compared it somewhat to the, to the Pentagon today with all the different hallways and, and different uh, areas of the Pentagon. But all the NATO, excuse me, all the NATO nations had uh, their own headquarters located there in different sections of the building and within that United States section was the NSA uh, we didn't call it headquarters it's an NSA station and there I, I, I was when I was reported there I reported to a who was an ex-CIA agent himself he was the chief of the station and was a uh, one fine man I tell you what, one, of the, group. one of the things that really surprised me is that some of your missions, a good many of them, it seems like from the book, your job was to spy not on enemy nations, but on our allies as well. 
That's that's correct. So in 1953, you were sent on three missions to Malta, which was then a, a British protectorate. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were you tasked with doing in Malta? We was tasked with with gathering all kind of communication uh, information from the British government. Uh, <clears throat> uh, spying, yes, it was spying on our friends and our neighbors. Somewhat different when you think of a spy spying on something else, but this was. Strictly, we were spying on our friends and neighbors. Uh, we had, I was always in, in civilian clothes, uh, posing as a, a civilian instructor to the radio operators and the, and the cryptographic operators that we had on our, on our mission. And they was working hand in hand with the British sailors there on the island of Malta. Uh, I had a lot of free time and a lot of opportunity to to observe and see what was going on within their communication systems and gather frequencies and times of the stations that they changed from one frequency to another, uh, even gathered uh, uh, some of the codes that they had that they in put into their cryptographic machines. Uh, uh, and then, of course, I communicated, brought that uh, information back to the headquarters at SHAPE headquarters when our mission was over. <laughs> On one of your Malta trips, a British battleship was docked, and you went to work. Uh, tell us how you were able to capture perhaps the first encryption machine for the United States from a NATO country. I had, um, <clears throat> on all our missions, uh, a person that I always, I kind of called him my shatter, someone that was familiar with the area, familiar with the languages, familiar with what was going on within the area. Uh, sometimes I saw that person... Every day, sometimes I hardly needed them, and I didn't have to encounter them. But I was informed that there was a British battleship that docked in the harbor of Malta, and that the British sailors was having their holidays. And there was a lot of them uh, in Valletta. That was the capital of Malta. And, uh, and I made it my business to get to know some of those British sailors. And I encountered one of them that I found out that worked aboard the communication systems on that battleship. So I, I took advantage of that young man. Uh, I say young man, he was, he was my age, maybe a little bit, <laughs> a little older maybe. But anyway, uh, he had an alcohol problem and I realized that and I took advantage of him and found out a lot of information that went on. I <clears throat> knew him and I found out that I told him I'd like to have a British uh, crypto machine, and he said, well, uh, what would you think it might be worth to you? And I said, well, maybe $500. And he said, well, I tell you what, friend, if you got $500, I could probably get you two of them. <laughs> so uh, sure enough, the next night, uh, I was staying in the same hotel in Valletta that, that a lot of the British sailors were. So uh, he brought me a crypto machine. Uh, there and immediately on receiving that machine uh, I, I, I realized I knew what I had in my hand and I made a quick trip to the airport that that night uh, but I was not able to get off the island there was no more flights off the island that night and uh, I stayed overnight got a plane out uh, from Malta the next morning early uh, on the way to, back to Paris and I went went from Malta to Rome to Paris and uh, about a few minutes into the flight, I realized we were not really going anywhere, that we were just kind of circling the island. And then we got a message from the pilot that uh, they had plane problems, had electrical problems on the plane, and just to be patient, that we might have to go back for a landing. 
and immediately uh, within my own mind, I, I felt like, well, it really wasn't an electrical problem on that plane. What was the problem was the crypto machine that belonged to the British government that I had under my seat, and, uh, and I really became scared. For the first time in my service, I was really uh, afraid of what might be going to happen, that I could only imagine what was going to take place if I was taken into custody with a British, uh, with a, you might say, not a stolen, but it was a stolen cryptographic machine that the British sailor had gotten for me and, uh, and all the implications that would take place. Um, but uh, as it we turned out, it was an electrical problem on the plane. They could not get the landing gears down, and we made a crash landing on the island uh, a little bit later that day. And uh, uh, as we was coming in for a landing, I could look up and see this. As we made a hard bump without the wheels on that plane, uh, I could see sparks and all flying down the whole right side of the plane. And suddenly the plane was on fire from one end to the other. Uh, Fourteen of us. 14 passengers aboard that plane, and, and I, we all got off safely. Uh, had a, quite an encounter for the next few hours trying to get myself off, and they said we, we could not leave, that we was going to have to go through a lot of uh, interrogation concerning the crash. And I, uh, I sat down and I wrote a, a note to the gentleman there at the Malta airport asking him to be released, that I would release the British European Airways of any. Uh, implications or anything concerning the crash but I had to return to Paris for my for duty and uh, after some few hours he told me that I was free to go and I returned to Paris with the first stolen British cryptographic machine uh, in the history of the United States I think and turned <laughs> it over to my superiors in shape headquarters uh that's a movie just right there, that, that one story alone. But we've got more to come, um, more incredible stories coming up next on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. Asgard in Norse mythology means dwelling of the gods that ruled the Vikings. Their presence and exploration was so profound that their three-century reign in parts of Europe is known as the Viking Age. Much like their ancestors, Asgard Brewing Company practices the Viking tradition of using what is locally available. You can taste the attention to detail in Asgard's farm-to-barrel brewing method with locally sourced ingredients. Stop by Asgard Brewing Company on the Duck River in downtown Columbia and channel your inner Viking. Brown's Body Shop has two locations to provide your vehicles with high-quality body and frame repairs, the best paint jobs, and custom body fabrications. Brown's Body Shop has been successful for more than 50 years because of their highly trained personnel, competitive prices, superior customer care, and timely service. Don't put off body repairs or that custom paint job to fenders. Go to Brown's Body Shop today, 1505 Nashville Highway in Columbia, 129 Alpha Drive in Franklin. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. 
Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Hello, I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. You may have heard our previous commercials about compression hosiery that we carry at Holland's Pharmacy. Well, we've recently expanded into a full line of knee braces, back, wrist, ankle, and other support wear. We will gladly help you get just the right fit for these items and, of course, special order items to ensure the proper fit. Come see us at Holland's Pharmacy, 1608 Hatcher Lane, or call us at 931-388-4233. 388-4233. Property care doesn't have to be back-breaking and time-consuming work for you. Let the specialists at Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping take care of it. You just enjoy. New or existing homes and businesses, basic lawn maintenance, complete property makeovers, new landscaping installs, and anything in between. Grading, gravel driveways, culverts, sod, drainage, beds, whatever you need. Find Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping on Facebook, then give them a call. Norman Norman's Lawn and Landscaping. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking to Mr. Robert Jones, who was a spy during the Cold War. Uh, Mr. Jones, you mentioned in your book that you took part in missions all over Europe. You mentioned Germany, Belgium, Denmark. Italy, Greece, France, Scotland, Finland, Norway, Turkey. You're spying on all those countries. Yes, all our NATO nations pretty much, Tom. Uh, anywhere where there was maneuvers uh, going on within the NATO countries, uh, we covered them. And, and we worked in the communications with, that, with the government. If we was in, uh, uh, like we talked a while ago, in Malta, we worked with the British government. If we was in Turkey, we worked with the British, I mean, with the Turkish uh, army. And if we was in Denmark, we were working with the uh, Danish Air Force. Uh, so yes, we, we covered a lot of maneuvers. And during that period of time of the Cold War, there was a lot of maneuvers going on jointly within the NATO nations. And we tried to cover those communications with our radio operators that was working our own frequencies and our crypto operators. Uh, and again, I was posing as a civilian instructor to all those, which gave me the freedom and opportunity to to gather uh, gather off of information on my own and uh, and, and expire on it. On one of the trips uh, in 1953, uh, late 53, I had been uh, released and, and was able to come back to the United States uh, briefly. Uh, I was married after being home seven days and and uh but then i was married on the december the 30th on january the 6th i received orders to return to shape headquarters which i left that very day from the nashville airport and flew back to paris um, once there my chief of the station uh again he was an ex-cia agent uh informed our group that we was going to denmark to carp denmark uh, a Danish Air Force base there, and <clears throat> and we had uh, suspicion that the chief of the communication system was acting as a double agent for the Russians and and within the Danish Air Force. He was a colonel, and uh, it was my mission, my personal mission, 
to see what I could find out about this gentleman and, and try to uh, know for fact what was going on within his duties. And uh, so we reported just outside of Copenhagen uh, to Carrop Air, uh, Air Force, Danish Air Force Base. And <clears throat> about the third day there, uh, I was talking with this Danish colonel. Uh, he spoke fluent uh, uh, Russian and English, plus his own native language of, of Danish. And <clears throat> we was looking at the cryptographic operators, the Danish and Americans working side by side. And I just kind of casually mentioned to him, I said, gee, I would sure love to get my hands on a Russian uh, crypto machine to kind of have some comparison of what, what we know about it and what they know about it. And uh, he, he made no comment, just acted like he didn't even hear what I was hardly saying. So that was just an off-the-cuff comment for you. That was going to yeah. be my question. So that, I knew right. you were sort of developing this relationship yeah. with this Danish colonel, and I was wondering, how do you get to the sentence, hey, I'd like to get one of those yeah. Russian It was just kind of an off-the-cuff off <laughs> comment that I thought I was kind of lead him into something. Uh, but it seemed like he just kind of fell on the floor and nothing happened. But about two days later, he uh, he came back to me and he said, Gee, fella, he said, uh, uh, with a broken English accent somewhat, he said, uh, were you really serious when you said you would love to have a Russian crypto machine? And I said, yeah, I, I sure would. I, I, I'd just like to be able to compare it and, and, and find out what I could and study it over it. And he said, well, I tell you, he said, that just might could be arranged. He said, uh, if you're interested in it, he said, but I'll tell you, it's going to cost you some money. And I said, well, uh, if you could arrange something like that, I said, uh, get back with me and let me know. I said, I don't know if I have enough money or not, but uh, whatever, uh, let me know what, what might, what might we, we could work out. So, again, in another couple of days, he come back, and he said, gee, he said, uh, that crypto machine you was interested in, he said, we could make that happen. And I, I said, well, that's, that'd be great. And he said, but... Uh, it's going to cost you probably $15,000. Well, I said, well, I, I don't know about that. I said, I'd have to find out. And this was one of the first mistakes I had, I had made since I had been in the, uh, uh, the spy business with, the, with NASA, with NSA. But <clears throat> I told him that I would have to talk to my chief. So in saying those few words, I'd have to talk to my chief. I revealed myself as as something more than just a, a, a sergeant in the American communications, and, uh, and of course I knew at that time he picked up on it. But I, I did. Did go, that make you nervous? Did that sort of want to yeah, yeah, make did. you back away a little bit? It or? did, Tom. Uh, uh, I didn't want to, to to back away from from anything, but I knew I had made a mistake. But uh, <clears throat> I went that that very day to the embassy. In, in, in Copenhagen, and, uh, and I began to talk to my chief back and forth with, on, with Morse code, uh, sending messages back and forth. And at that time, you know, you couldn't reach out with Morse code around the world like you can communications today. You'd, you'd go two or 250 miles, and, and your message would be received at one station and passed on. But anyway, in my communications from, from Copenhagen down to Paris, France, uh, talking to my chief, he uh, told me, give me the go-ahead. 
And he said, but try to get it a little bit cheaper if you could. And I couldn't imagine, you know, our government uh, spilling over a difference of fifteen or ten or fifteen thousand dollars. That's government work uh, right there. Yeah, he was. He was working for for him, for his big boss too, I guess. But anyway, uh, I got back with the drainage colonel, and uh, and told him that what we would do. And he said, "Gee," he said, uh, "I'll find out what goes on." He said, "You know, uh, this was a double thing working for them. Uh, they had a, 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 a Russian major that was in charge of their communication center in Berlin, and they suspected him of acting as a double agent, a traitor to their own country, Russia. And he <coughs> got with him and and worked out a deal." That we was going to exchange, and we we I did get the money down. We went from fifteen thousand to down to ten thousand dollars is what we agreed to pay for it, and uh, doesn't sound like a lot of money today, but in in in, in today's world, that uh, that ten thousand dollars will be equivalent to about ninety thousand dollars that we was paying for that machine in today's money. Uh, <clears throat> so we made arrangements to set up and 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 do it. They wanted to tell us when they would make the exchange and where and the time. And, uh, and I talked with the CIA agent that I was, was working with. He had been assigned to me to help me to get through this, what we was doing. And uh, he said, no, no, we're not going to do that. If we make any exchange, it'll be on our grounds. It'll be, we'll set the place and the time and the area that we're going to make the exchange. So uh, they agreed to that, and we agreed that we would meet in in Hamburg, Germany, on a certain day at a certain hotel at a certain time, and we moved on from there. And in just a couple of days, we, uh, uh, a CIA agent and myself, I thought we would travel there about a five-hour car trip, five, six hours uh, that day, and he said, no, we'll have to go early. We're going to go early. We'll get our bed made, and we'll know what's going on, and anything that's any, being a trap set, We'll find out about it before they get there. I'm going to so, stop you right there okay, in the midst of this incredible story. Okay. We need to take one more break. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Have you been hauling your own garbage to the convenience center? Are you tired of doing it? Does your work schedule keep you from hauling it off regularly? Is your teenage son not taking it off like he promised when he got his driver's license? Do you have something better to do on Saturday? If any of these questions strike home to you, call the garbage man at 931-540-0919 and your problem will be solved. Looking for convenience? Try Quitlock Convenience Stores, conveniently located all across Murray County, southern Middle Tennessee, and north Alabama. Right now, get 99-cent icy any size. Hungry for breakfast? Try two ham biscuits for $3. Or how about two grilled chicken sandwiches for just $4? It's Quitmark Convenience Stores, conveniently located all across southern Middle Tennessee and north Alabama. Quitmark Convenience Stores, proudly serving Shell Gasoline. 
staff at Spring Hill Memorial Park and Funeral Home know that today's busy schedules often cause you to put things off that need to be done. Planning for the inevitable is a special gift from the heart that spares your loved ones the burden of making difficult decisions at the time of your death. The experienced and caring staff at Spring Hill Memorial will assist you in making these decisions. Locally owned and operated, Spring Hill Memorial Park Funeral Home and Cremation Services, 931-486-0059. Visit your local Buick and GMC dealership first for new or pre-owned cars, trucks, and SUVs. Parks Motor Sales. At Parks, professional sales staff makes shopping easy. Buick and GMC financing can put you in the vehicle you want. And certified technicians keep vehicles running great. Experience the new Buick at Parks Motor Sales. Go online to parksmotorsales.com. Find your favorite vehicle. Then stop by Parks at 919 Nashville Highway for a test drive. Parks GMC. We are professional grade. If you hear this commercial and spend absolutely any time outside, you need Columbia Farm Supply. Animal supplies, decor, hand tools, clothing, hardware, and more. For whatever you need on the farm, in your garden, on your front porch, your backyard, your property line, if you need it outside, check Columbia Farm Supply first. See all their products at morethanafarmstore.com, then you'll be ready to head out to 170 Bear Creek Pike to give them a visit. Columbia Farm Supply. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. We're in the middle of an incredible story where Mr. Bob Jones has made an arrangement, is making a deal uh, to acquire a, a Soviet uh, cryptographic machine. So we are in Germany uh, in a hotel, and how is this exchange going to happen? Uh, Tom, uh, we made our rendezvous in a hotel in Hamburg, Germany, uh, and again, when I uh, registered into the hotel, I was assigned my room number there, again, was 204, kind of a little bit spooky, I guess, but this number keeps popping up in my life, uh, but I went up to the room and and uh, and checked it all out. Uh, a little bit later, I met with a CIA agent that was going to meet with me that morning, and uh, he went up to the room with me, and and then he said, "Now this is, this will work out." It was a very ordinary room, uh, just a bed and a chest and one chair, as I remember in the room, uh, just a, a, a curtain over a bathroom and a curtain over a closet door. And uh, we went back down, and I was supposed to meet with the uh, Russian major that was coming from Berlin with this cryptographic machine. And uh, <coughs> once I saw him out on the street, I was looking outside the hotel, kind of observing and watching and going back to some of my previous training, just seeing anything uh, out of the ordinary that might be going on. Uh, I saw him. He appeared to be doing the same thing, but we did meet in the hotel a little bit later, about 1 o'clock that day, and uh, I, when he came in, I didn't first go up to him. I wanted to make sure that wasn't anybody following him and that he was indeed by himself. Uh, we went up to the room 204, and went into the room, and I remember distinctly locking the door behind me. It was cold. This was in February. Uh, I took my top coat off and folded it, kind of laid it across the corner of the bed, and uh, he laid the Russian cryptographic machine out on the bed, and I knew immediately what it was. And I thought, oh, boy, Bobby, you have hit a home run here. Uh, and he began to take it out of the package, 
And then suddenly the door to our bedroom, uh, room 204, uh, burst open and in walked. At that time, I thought two of the biggest men I ever seen in my life. I knew immediately that what was beginning to take place. I knew that that was two of the uh, Russian KGB officers and uh, uh, <clears throat> they began to take charge. Uh, after a little bit of communication and talking among themselves between the Russian major and the two CI uh, Russian KGB officers, uh, they began to shove him back and forth between themselves and, and it began to get a little, rough him up a little bit. And I noticed immediately that one of them had a pistol in his hand and the other one had a long knife, must have been 12, 14 inch blade. And uh, within moments, I, I knew that, you know, my life was short lived. Uh, I didn't know what was going to take place. I knew what was going to take place. I did, just didn't know how quick. And again, the CIA agent that was watching after me was hidden in the closet behind the curtain. And uh, <clears throat> it, within five, six, seven seconds, they, the Russian KGB officers had completely decapitated the, the Russian major. They shoved his body over against me and his head rolled on the floor. Uh, good blood was rushing everywhere and <clears throat> then I heard gunfire begin to go and uh, one of the KGB officers fell against the wall and the other one fell forward and uh, this was uh, my CIA agent that was uh, taking charge and he had stepped up and, and suddenly he came out from that closet and I knew immediately that he had been wounded uh, he was losing blood profusely and he fell to his knees and fell across the corner of the bed where my top coat was, he was laying right on top of my top coat. I went to my knees and fell. I said, are you okay? Because I, I, I knew he wasn't okay. He said, finish the mission, finish the mission. And he, and he died right there. Uh, so I was left in the room by myself with uh, four dead men, uh, two of them Russian KGB, the Russian uh, major that was a, a a traitor to his own country that's selling that machine to me. And uh, I, I gathered up the machine, folded it up, got my top coat, and left the room immediately and went down onto the street of Hamburg. We had previously planned to, uh, <coughs> to travel, the CIA agent and I, to Frankfurt, Germany, to the uh, NSA headquarters there. Going back to the station that I had previously started out my, 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 my duty with. And... Um, I had no idea how I was going to get out of Hamburg, how I was going to travel. Uh, I began to ask questions on the street, and when people would see me, when I would try to approach them, they would just holler and scream and get away from me quickly. I didn't understand why. Uh, I, I tried to get into a taxi cab. Uh, when he saw the condition I was in, he drove off immediately. But then I realized that, gee, you know, money may talk, and I had a pocket full of it. I had ten thousand dollars in my pocket that I was going to exchange for that machine and uh, so I reached down in my pocket and within that pocket I pulled out a key that was to the, the key on a wooden thing that went to the to the room 204 uh, and then when I pulled my hand out of a, my top coat pocket it was just covered and sticky with, with with blood all over me and all over everything so that's why people were looking at you in that manner you were covered in in blood yes i was i i didn't realize how much i had over me it was all over me my face and my hands and my coat mr bob were you armed did you uh, have a gun? no no i was never armed and uh <clears throat> so i, I took, pulled out uh 
a couple of hundred dollar bills out of another envelope that was not uh, that was in my suit coat pocket, and I went to another taxi cab sitting on the street, and I offered them a hundred dollars. I just I didn't speak, of course, any German, and I just said Frankfurt, Frankfurt, and I showed him a hundred dollar bill. Uh, the taxi cab driver looked a little interested. He, he nodded his head, but he held up two fingers, and I knew immediately that he wanted two hundred dollars. So uh, I, I said okay, and I made it known that one there and and another one in Frankfurt. So uh, I got in the cab and away we went. At that time, my life was dependent on him to get me out of Frank, get me out of Hamburg and to Frankfurt, Germany. So we drove all night long uh, to get into get into Frankfurt. It was late that night when we arrived at the United States Army headquarters, where the I, I, where I thought the the NSA headquarters was. It was at the time I first got there on Christmas day after Christmas, 1952. Uh, but it had been moved, un not, to my knowings, and uh, when we arrived there, uh, <clears throat> I had a hard time communicating with some uh, military police at the front gate of the headquarters because they didn't know who I was. I had no identification. I had no passport. I had nothing to identify myself, so they uh, tried to just hustle me off, and I just kept insisting and insisting uh, to let me talk to the officer of the day which they did, and he wasn't too interested in me either. But finally I said, please, please just let me just make one phone call to the NSA headquarters here in, in Frankfurt, and uh, uh, you'll get find out what's going on. Because they was expecting me that night to report to them. Uh, so he did make that phone call, and in five minutes uh, a car pulled up, two men got out. One of them was an NSA agent uh, that was – I first met when I first got got to Germany, uh, and he hugged me like like, like a long lost son. Uh, I cried on his shoulder that night. Uh, I was so devastated. Been some long days, and I was really messed up. And uh, but he carried me back to his headquarters. He got got me uh, a change of clothes, made arrangements for me to to bathe and clean myself up, and give me something to eat. And he said, "Now, Bob," he said. We're not going to stay here. Uh, we're going to move on. Uh, we got to get to Paris. We're not going to stay here. And, and the, the KGB will not let this go by because they've lost the first battle. And he said, we've got to get out of, out of Frankfurt and, and get this machine to shape headquarters in Paris. So, uh, again, we traveled all night. The machine went in one car, and we went in a different car. So we wouldn't be couldn't be tied together. Uh, again, an all-night trip from there to Paris and, and back to Shape Headquarters. It's an absolute incredible story. You're a hero, Mr. Bob. I mean, what what you did uh, for this country is absolutely amazing. And again, this is this is the mid 1950s, 1953, 1954. We're at the height of the Cold War at this point, and and that's the war gathering intelligence uh, as the United States and the Soviet Union are, are vying for global dominance. You're, you're the spear tip, really, uh, in, in this war. You have so many more stories, which unfortunately we're going to run out of time to be able to, to cover. Uh, again, your book called Room 204, Story of a Cold War Spy. 
uh, is not currently available. People are welcome to come to the archives where we have a copy uh, at the Murray County Archives. You can come in and read the book, and it's not a long book. You can read it in an afternoon, and you would be a better person for it. It's an incredible story. Quickly, what did you do in your civilian life? You got out of the military. Your enlistment was up in 1955. The NSA asked you to asked you to stay, and you decided to go home instead. I decided to go home instead, uh, <clears throat> which I did. And it was a uh, I worked with Union Carbide here in Columbia, uh, 37 years. Uh, and when I left there, I was a production superintendent of the plant and. Uh, 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 a couple of weeks, Miss Charlotte Battles asked me if I could come up to the King's Auto School and, and help them out on a problem. And uh, it took me 14 years to get away from there. And, Tom, I have to tell you, that was the happiest years of my life, being spent time there at the King's Auto School here in Columbia with their clients and all the people there. It was a great experience for me. One last question. You told nobody about your military career, not even your wife until when? How many years elapsed before you told this story? Tom, I went uh, 62 years with a secret bottled up in my heart, and I couldn't, I was sworn to that secrecy for 15 years when I returned to civilian life. Uh, but from that point on, no, I, I just couldn't talk about it. There were so many other harrowing experiences that had taken place also. Uh, but it just, I just couldn't bring myself to talk about it. My wife, my children, nobody knew anything about it until I spoke to a veterans tribute at First Methodist Church one night about three years ago, and, uh, and I revealed my story then. Um, Mr. Bob, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for your service to our country. It's, it's much appreciated. Thank you also to our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County, for their support. On behalf of Marty Verhoff, our engineer, Dr. Barry Gidcomb, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for listening to History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by ServPro of Murray and Giles County. ServPro, faster to any disaster. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Holtz Towing offers complete roadside assistance and has been rescuing drivers in Middle Tennessee for 23 years. They are available 24 hours a day, so in an emergency, just call Holtz Towing right away. If you get a flat, engine trouble, or run out of gas, Call Holtz Towing. Mention this ad and save $5. They do minor repairs and pay cash for junk cars. Remember, Holtz Towing, 615-708-7073. That's 615-708-7073.
Welcome to Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram, dedicated to exceptional service, the highest integrity, and your complete satisfaction. We're proud to serve all of Middle Tennessee with over 500 new and 125 pre-owned vehicles in stock to choose from. Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram offers volume discounts from friendly and knowledgeable sales professionals for expert service from our certified technicians. That's how we became the number one Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram dealer in the state of Tennessee. You can count on us. Number one claim based on 2015 combined retail and fleet sales for Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in the state of Tennessee. Hello, I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. You may have heard our previous commercials about compression hosiery that we carry at Holland's Pharmacy. Well, we've recently expanded into a full line of knee braces, back, wrist, ankle, and other support wear. We will gladly help you get just the right fit for these items and, of course, special order items to ensure the proper fit. Come see us at Holland's Pharmacy, 1608 Hatcher Lane, or call us at 931-388-4233. 388-4233. At Southern Trey Steakhouse in downtown Columbia, we hand-select only the best black Angus beef for our cut-by-hand steaks. Our chops are French-cut and flame-kissed. Want something lighter and fair? Try our garden-fresh salads or something fresh from the sea. Classic Southern sides, a bounty of appetizer options and pastas, and some of the best sandwiches in town. There's something for everybody at Southern Trey Steakhouse on West 7th Street in downtown Columbia. WKOM, your music, your sports, your radio station. WKOM, 101.7 FM. You hit the right spot.